This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey all, this is the Bite Size Business Breakfast podcast. The best bits from Friday, February the 16th, where we heard from Andrew Cummings. Andrew is the head of residential agency at Savills Middle East. Their latest report is out. It paints a pretty picture for prime real estate here in the region. No shortage of demand for that prime real estate coming through for property buyers. Uh, But there could be a little bit of relief from uh, record prices this year, especially in the luxury segment. Just a few of the observations of the extensive survey. Dan Richards, also in studio. He's the MENA economist, Emirates NBD. Uh, Wanted Dan to come in and explain in fairly straightforward terms what was going on with the UK and the Japanese economies. Why? Because both slipping into recession. But is it full-blown recession? Is it a technical recession? Is a recession a depression and vice versa? Uh, Dan was able to give us the 101 on that and look ahead to other potential uh, hotbeds for economies moving forward. Nancy Gleason is from uh, NYU Abu Dhabi Sadiat campus. And Nancy joined us to talk all things AI. It was a hot topic Uh, the World Government Summit earlier on this week. Uh, The ChatGPT transformative effect, especially on education, was one of the titles, uh, one of the topics that Sam Altman uh, addressed at the summit. And we've got Nancy's thoughts. And now that the dust has settled at the World Government Summit uh, 2024. And the economics of festivals also being discussed. Why? Because... Well, we think Untold was still going on when we went live on air, certainly day one of four days of the Untold Festival. It is undoubtedly, um, in terms of scale, the biggest music festival ever to come to Dubai. It started uh, on Thursday, goes all the way through the weekend, over 100 artists. Well, they've got targets of upwards of quarter of a million uh, visitors as well. Uh, All good and well, but what about the... Economics. What about the funding? What about the, uh, the, the the money involved? A couple of the questions that we put to the CEO of Untold Dubai Festival, uh, Eddie Kerrigy, who was kind enough to join us live from the main stage. That's all coming up right here on the Bite Size Business Breakfast Podcast. First up there, let's look at the economics of entertainment. Best location of Dubai, Expo City, is the home of Untold Dubai, an iconic location. That is the Untold Festival. It began last night. It carries on this weekend. It's described as the biggest ever music festival in the UAE. And we've been speaking to the man organising it, the Romanian entrepreneur, Eddie Kerigi. Now, Untold, initially a Romanian festival brand, It spread across Europe and now this year making its debut in Dubai. We've been speaking to Eddie about it this morning. He joined us live from the main stage, no less, Tom, didn't he? I know. Main stage in the background, nice little setting in his dark glasses as well, like any good impresario and show promoter. Good on you, Ed. We wanted to know about... not Not a wink of sleep all night long. Last DJ set finished about four hours ago, and he's up talking to us about dollars and cents or euros and dirhams. So how does it work? How do you crunch the numbers, Eddie? You're the CEO. You're the money man. 300 dirhams for the cheapest ticket. 
And he says they're going to have up to quarter of a million people through the gates at this weekend's event. So we asked him, OK, you're going to be bringing in quite a bit of revenue, but how much is it costing you to put this on? And how much of that are you hoping to claw back? This is what Eddie Kerridge had to say. Well, for the production from the artists, for everything that we need to have here, it's around uh, 17 million euros. And uh, for sure, we are uh, aware that for the first edition, because we invest a lot, we are not looking really to break even. So it's an investment that we do here because this is our promise that we're going to be in Dubai for a long term. We invest in our brand, in our experience here, and we are looking forward for the next edition. So it's like a promise that I can do for you that I'm told this year to stay, no matter the budget, no matter the numbers that we're going to do this year, because we want to do something special for this beautiful city and we want to contribute to the happiest city in the world. So, lots of reaction on social media. He says about 40,000 people there for the first night listening to artists, including this woman. I was going to call her Hereford's finest, but of course she's not. That's you, because you and Ellie Golding are for the same Ellie town. Gets Ellie gets it, definitely. She's born and bred. I was just an imposter. I went to boarding school there. doesn't count. <laughs> Whatever whatever her route, she was on stage in Dubai last night. And 40,000 people, says Eddie, were there to watch the event. Lots of great reaction on social media. Loved it. Great night. Going to be back there for day two. But inevitably, with an event on that scale, you do get people criticising as well. For example, Courtney on Twitter saying, we only had 12 scanners on picnic benches to get tens of thousands of people through. I came to see Chase and Status, a couple of artists, but was unable to see either of them. We put this to Eddie Kerrigy. This is what he had to say. We um, advise anyone who wants to attend the festival and uh, they want to save time when they arrive at the festival. They need to download our application Untold app or to go to our website and over there they can register their ticket because the access in the festival is similar with the access uh, on a flight, for example, where we need to check in your ticket up front. So if you do this online before coming to the festival, you will save a lot of time. Better to come earlier, so if you want to see an artist who's performing at 8 p.m., let's say, it's better to be here around 6 p.m. to have minimum two hours to uh, get the stages, to understand uh, everything that's happening here. The one I'm looking forward to most of all isn't today. It isn't even tomorrow. It's on Sunday, because that's when this guy takes the stage. Still dining out off his K-pop hit from more than 10 years ago, Psy, part of the lineup at the Untold Festival. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Talking artificial intelligence now, it was the big topic at the World Government Summit this week. But was the hype justified or just a lot of hot air? One person who was there was Professor Nancy Gleason from New York University Abu Dhabi Sadiat campus. She is Associate Professor of Practice and Political Science there and the Director of the Hillary Ballon Centre for Teaching and Learning. She joins us now live on the line from Sadiat Island. Morning, Professor Gleason. Good morning. Good to see you again. So you were there at the World Government Summit. What do you make? Hype and hot air or real substance? I think it was a 
lot of real substance, but this is an audience that's global leaders. So now they have to take that advice home and turn it into legislative action um, or decrees, depending on your country. There's work to be done. And that is a clear message from the blockbuster lineup they had there. And it really was a blockbuster lineup. Let's hear from a couple of them now. Sam Altman was speaking. He wasn't in the UAE. He was speaking live by team zoom whatever it may be to omar al-alama the uae minister of ai both of them a couple of evangelists but have a listen to their conversation on your specialist area which is education and in particular cheating at schools and universities and i'll get your reaction in a few moments time this is first of all omar al-alama uae energy minister asking the questions to the chat gpt founder sam altman so I'd like to just um, touch upon the UAE's experience here because we did talk about this when we were together in person a few weeks yeah. ago. Uh, we've seen that the deployment of large language models and ChatGPT in specific, what's something that you think uh, is, a, is a model for other governments to follow in this domain? So first of all, you, you touched on something that I want to spend a second on it because I think it's informative to what's happening, um, which was about education and cheating in schools. And when... ChatGPT first came out, uh, you know, the whole world had a moment of adjustment, but the first thing that happened is, at least in the United States, in my experience, school districts were falling all over themselves to ban ChatGPT the fastest and declare it, you know, this existential threat to education. And other people got concerned later, but it really started with education. Education was also the place it reversed the quickest. Teachers and school districts embraced it and said, you know, hey, this is part of the future. This is something that we all want. This is going to help our students learn better. And I, I really believe this will be the most, this already is, uh, and certainly will be, one of the most transformative technologies for education we've had in, in recent times. So using AI to cheat at school and university, Professor Gleason, discuss. Okay, well, you know, academic misconduct comes in lots of different forms, but using ChatGPT is really not one of them as long as you represent your ideas. And fighting it from the academic perspective, academic misconduct or cheating perspective is really not the right approach. Students are using it and they're going to use it whether or not the teacher tells them they can or can't. It's explaining to them what the learning objectives are and how it can be uh, helpful to do it with or with the assignment, with or without it, that really matters. Um, Universities are responding to this quickly. Uh, Arizona State University in the United States has has partnered up with OpenAI and is making individualized AI tutors. Here in the UAE, um, our very forward Minister of Education, forward-looking Minister of Education, has announced that every K-12 student will have an individualized GPT-enabled AI tutor by next September. The company doing this is called ASI, and they've partnered with Microsoft, uh, and they're working on how to do this safely for minors. But this will be a tool that unlocks all kinds of creativity and helps us get past the content and the grammar faster so we can focus on teaching students how to think. But I will say that using ChatGPT is typically fraud, not plagiarism. And this is confusing for schools and students. Okay, fraud and plagiarism, those distinctions. Briefly, what are we talking about here? So it's not necessarily stealing someone's ideas, it's just misrepresenting your own. It is still challenging to cite ChatGPT. And there's norms um, coming about of, of how you can do that. But 
it's a very fast evolving space. The point is ChatGPT is very good for helping you brainstorm, make outlines, um, give a counter argument to the arguments you're making, help you craft emails, but it will defeat the purpose if you use it to write an essay. And although right now it doesn't write the most perfect essay, it's a matter of months, not years before it can. So saying it can't do what I do as a teacher is really the wrong approach because eventually it will do what you do. So how do we integrate it and focus on teaching thinking and the process of thinking rather than say the outcome product of a paper? A lot of the great work on AI globally at the moment is coming out of Abu Dhabi, isn't it? And that was acknowledged this week. Companies like G42 and others doing incredible work in partnership with the likes of, of OpenAI and Sam Altman and also in the field of Arabic language as well. What are you seeing in the Emirate you call home? Yeah, it's amazing. So we've created in the UAE through IIT and Mohammed bin Zayed University of Artificial Intelligence and some pref professors at New York University Abu Dhabi to create what's called Falcon, uh, which is the world's largest large language model. Um, for those of, those of us into the units, it's 180 billion parameters, so bigger than OpenAI's ChatGPT, uh, and it's trained in Arabic. It's still too sophisticated to use on a regular laptop. But what we do have in Abu Dhabi is a, is a large language model called JAIS, J-A-I-S. And that is a wonderful Arabic language model. It's less sophisticated than ChatGPT4, but um, showing potential for us to be able to use Chat our large language models and generative AI in native languages. And at the World Government Summit, what uh, the CEO of Navida, Jensen Huang said, was that we really have to protect our national intellect and not let our intellect be plumped in to non-national large language models. And that's why Falcon and Jace are so important. So what he argued for is that every country needs to own the production of their own intelligence. And using these domestic produced and language specific LLMs is the way to do that. Finally, looking at your LinkedIn post from the World Government Summit, you talked about, yes, artificial intelligence, but its role in promoting the sustainable development goals of the United Nations, including SDG5, gender equality. What's the link between AI and gender equality? About 30 seconds on that. I know you could write a PhD on it, but you've got 30 seconds, Professor Gleason. Sure, sure. So SDG5 on gender equality um, is facing some challenges from AI because currently uh, there are many of the programmers are male. And so we need to make sure that women are at the table, women are in the decision-making processes, and women are influencing the ways in which AI is used to help us run society. And so, as Sam Altman said, we can easily imagine a world where everybody's lives are better, but we need to make sure that women's voices are at the table. And there were many female speakers at the World Government Summit. The UAE is out in front of this, but there's still work to do, and keeping it in the forefront is important. And you are one of them, Professor Gleason, so we appreciate your time this morning. That is Professor Nancy Gleason joining us on the line from New York University, Abu Dhabi their Abu Dhabi campus on Sadiat Island. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Yeah, more on that headline. The UK now officially in recession. But what does that mean for 
those in the UK, those from the UK, all of us here tuning in at the moment. Well, let's find out uh, with the thoughts of the MENA economist for Emirates MBD, Daniel Richards, who's been kind enough to join us on a Friday morning. Morning, Dan. No work from home for you today, no? <laughs> no, not today, sadly. Good morning. Uh, so the UK has fallen into recession. The second uh, big economy or second big ne- nation to uh, fall, fall into recession this week. We'll get to the wherewithals in just a few moments time, but a bit of a 101 for those listening in and wanting a bit of it. What, what, what is a recession and what does it mean? So for Japan and the UK this week, it's a technical recession. So it means two consecutive quarters where quarter on, where the output in that quarter has been less than the previous quarter. So two Q on Q negative readings, essentially. Uh, the UK had 0.1% contraction in Q3, and then again in Q4, another 0.1% contraction. So that puts it in a technical recession. For the year as a whole, there was growth, but only marginal, 0.1% growth for the year as a whole. I mean, I'm looking at UK numbers. UK had good retail numbers coming out over the Christmas period to be expected, etc. Property market is still holding steady, especially in some of the hubs like the like uh, London and otherwise. How has the UK got to this point? Essentially, it is by and large a product of the higher interest rates. So we had that inflationary shock. Inflation didn't get to kind of Zimbabwe-esque levels, but still very high, has been coming down. But we have also got high interest rates. So, all right, the economy has slowed, but that is the intended uh, reality. That is the intended outcome from those high interest rates. The central bank wanted to slow down the economy, wanted to slow down that price growth, which if it becomes entrenched, essentially erodes early becomes quite uh, pernicious. Um, so they wanted to do that and it has been coming down. So yes, the growth is disappointing, but hopefully this year they'll be able to start easing interest rates and the economy should start picking up again. Is it a wake up call for the Bank of England? Well, you look at inflation, the headline did come down to 4% in January, as released earlier this week. That was a bit better than expected. So that did rise expectations that we would see rate cuts sooner than later. But it's still a long way above the target rate. And when you look at some of the underlying numbers, those pressures are still there. So services inflation was still very high, around 6.5%. And also when you look at wage growth, that's still above 6%. So there's still potential upside pressures to inflation to come. Central banks were arguably caught napping with inflation on the way up. They don't want to start cutting too early. So even with that disappointing growth outlook, I think it's a bit too soon to say that the Bank of England is necessarily going to pivot any sooner than we might have expected. Let's go cross-continent to Japan as well, because whilst the UK, we could make an argument that we sort of saw it coming. It might have been a bit expected. A lot of analysts saying that the Japan decision was very unexpected, falling into recession along this week after the economy shrank for two quarters in a row. Was it unexpected? Yeah, I think that second quarter of, of, in Q4 was quite in, unexpected. No one expected Japan to see very strong growth. I don't think anyone's really expected that for, that from Japan for years, frankly. But to go, fall into a technical recession was a bit of a surprise. For the year as a whole, growth was a bit stronger, around 1.2%, I think. But again, while inflation has not been high at all in Japan, as it, as it hasn't been for decades, it has been higher than people are used to. And wages haven't kept pace with that. So households have come under pressure while businesses haven't been spending or investing in Japan as much as they might to support the economy either with a lot of that investment going abroad still. 
Japan losing its its ranking as the world's third largest economy as part of that as well, loses out to Germany, I'm sure. Uh, they don't lose sleep over that, but we'll be looking to get things back on track. And yet, we look at some of the data coming out of Japan today. Yes, we know that the yen is under pressure from the US dollar and other currencies around the world. And yet... The stock market seem to be in a pretty good place in Japan at the moment as well. So there seems to be activity there, and yet the economy not reacting. Tourism numbers are also really good. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I think part of that is coming out of a pandemic still. I don't think things have completely normalised. Japan, of course, was quite slow to lift all of its uh, COVID-19 restrictions. So it's still uh, getting back to a level playing field following that. But in terms of the stock market that has now picked up again, it's heading back towards those record 1989 levels. The weak yen, though, as you say, is a big contributing factor to that. Back around those 150 mark levels as it looks like the central bank is going to push back any historic rate hikes which had been expected to come around April but then you see the weak GDP figures for Q4 the weak consumption levels maybe they won't be able to do that just yet. I'm glad that you're here to, to, to explain the sort of difference between a technical recession and a re- recession per se, because I think a lot of people hear the, the R word and go, oh, <laughs> let's run for the hills, quit, we're all going to be eating squirrels by the end of the week, etc. Is, is that because of the sort of weight it carries and, and the effects of previous recessions? I'm looking at it from a UK point of view, what, what, 2008, probably the biggest recession in recent memory as well. Do people need to sort of put into context what a recession is? Yeah, I think so. All right, technical recession, but there has been marginal growth, sure, but there has been a little growth. It hasn't been the kind of recession, but as you say, people hear and worry about like we saw in 2008 and of course during the COVID pandemic, which was its own own special thing, but it hasn't been that bad. And like I say, it is largely a product or in large part a product of those higher interest rates. When you look back to the start of last year, no one really expected growth for major economies at all. As it was, we had marginal recessions at best from a few of the big economies. Well, the US really outperformed like significantly, coming at 2.5% growth, even with that higher interest rate environment. So, okay, things aren't exactly flying, but when you consider the very sharp monetary tightening we had, I think the global economy has actually come out pretty well. In the absence of Brandy Scott, I'll ask the question, the age-old question that always gets asked, whether you're on the phone or in the studio as well. Um, all good and well, okay. Yeah, feel for the for the. Japanese and uh, the British uh, out there at the moment. But how does it affect us? Is there a knock-on effect for people in the UAE? Well, I guess potentially for British is a big source market for visitors to Dubai and the UAE. So that is a potential impact if uh, households continue to pare back spending. As it is, spending on travel experiences has held up pretty well, but that might just start to come off as those, some of those pandemic easings, uh, savings start to be eroded. But for the UAE generally, our outlook this year is still pretty strong growth for around 4 to 5%, even as the global economy is expected to come in a bit slower. Well, we've got less than a minute left, Dan. Um, obviously, two countries have uh, been declared or going into technical recessions this year. Um, on the recession landscape at the moment, looking out, any other concerns on the horizon? I think the outlook for this year is generally that things will be better, but they won't be very strong. So the IMF recently upgraded the US, for instance, from 4.5% forecast to 2.1%. That's pretty good. Some of the other major economies, developed market economies, Eurozone, Germany, UK, they're not going to be that good. When you look at some of our, our local markets, our regional markets, some of those are somewhat stronger. India in particular remains a bright spot, I think, and that will feed through to supporting growth here as well. 
Dan, really appreciate your time. Thanks so much indeed for explaining it to us all. Daniel Richards, MENA economist, Emirates MBD, joining us live in studio on a Friday morning. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. So we're just talking economy outlook with Dan Richards from Emirates MBD. Let's now talk property and real estate outlook for 2024 with our friends at Savills. Always interested to get the latest Savills report. Why? Because uh, very much an international brand, a focus on cities around the world. So it's always good to compare and contrast how Dubai is doing. Let's get the latest from the head of residential agency Savills Middle East, Andrew Cummings, who's here with the report in hand. Good morning to you, Andrew. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's start with a couple of the top. Like, let's start with the prime residential property, the, 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 the sort of property the majority of our listeners will be uh, looking at getting involved in. The outlook looks pretty good for prime residential, correct? Yeah, very much so. Look, for the past few years, Dubai has been on a high. You know, we've seen some really good growth. And over the past 20, uh, the past 12 months, we've seen over 17% growth here in Dubai. Uh, that did slow a little bit in the second half of the year, where it drifted to just over 5% growth. But in general, the outlook remains positive. And over the next 12 months, we're still predicting a bit of a more normalised level of growth between around 4 and 6%. How does it compare with, as I mentioned just earlier, you know, obviously you keep an eye on other cities, you're able to compare and contrast. How does it compare with other cities around the world? Look, over the past couple of years, Dubai has continually really leapt to the top of those league tables. It wasn't the case in the past, but what we're seeing at the moment is that it is an outlier. However, there's still a good underlying, uh, underlying story of why that's happening. When you do the cost comparison with these different cities, Dubai is averaging just $750 per square foot, which is around $2,700 dirhams per square foot. When you contrast that with, say, London, that's actually at $1,900 per square foot. When you look at New York, that's $2,500 per square foot. So we're really seeing that Dubai's affordability on a global scale is being maintained. That said, the gap is closing. And if you go back just three years, the gap between London and Dubai was more like a five to one ratio. And now that's down to around a three to one ratio. So as Dubai's growth has started, we've really started to see uh, the, uh, the gap close with those international cities. And talking of those international cities, just before we move on to all things luxury, I mean, London is always one that's talked about and compared and contrasted, etc. So if the Dubai forecast is good for this year, would it be the same in London or are we waiting to see? No, look, uh, we'll wait to see. There's a lot going on in the world this year. Um, actually, elections is uh, every year, I suppose. Look, elections is actually a big one this year. Uh, elections are taking place uh, in around 40 countries, which account for over 60% of the world's population. That's going to have a, a profound impact mm. on, on what happens in real estate. But equally, what we're likely to see is a dropping off of interest rates, which will probably happen more towards the end of the year. So whilst you might have that uncertainty from elections, you'll also see a drop in interest rates. That could could lead to a bit of a boost in the prime prices towards the end of the year. And of course, here in Dubai, a drop in interest rates means an increase in mortgage registrations and then, again, further growth. OK, the time have cometh. Uh, let's talk Rodney millionaires because uh, the influx of millionaires, uh, multimillionaires, uh, squillionaires and whatever any airs you want as into Dubai has been well documented as well. That's had a knock-on effect on the luxury segment and luxury home prices. How's that set? Set fair for the year? So look, I think I think there's been three phases is the way I look at it when you look at the growth over the past three years. That first phase was that post-COVID bounce. Um, that first year where everyone rushed to space, moved out to the palm and so on and so forth. You then saw a further influx as the sort of confidence came, but also there was regional 
instability. This phase we're in now, I really call it, it's around maturity, the maturity of the market and the buyer that's coming over here. And that's why this prime cities index is so important. The people who are moving here now are slightly different from what we used to get five years ago. You know, five years ago, getting a client from Monaco was a rarity. It was almost a little bit glamorous. Now there's plenty of them. You know, we have British people. I can name, name people today who they've moved over. I have one friend who uh, owns an air conditioning company in, in the UK for some reason, which I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, but, you know, he's moved here, but he's moved here for lifestyle. You know, you've got people who are moving here because Dubai has truly become that lifestyle destination. And ultra high net worths turn up to Dubai now and they realize they can get everything they want, a better lifestyle. They can get Nobu delivered to their door. They've got world-class schooling and hospitals. And it's become somewhere that the ultra high net worths, millionaires, billionaires, and occasional squillionaires, you know, they're the ones that actually say, I want to be in Dubai. And you know, whether that's for three months a year or for a longer period, they want to own a home. So I think you're going to see continued growth there. And I think there's some big launches coming you know, later in the year, which will further develop that sort of luxury space. Yeah, I mean, we reported earlier on a couple of extraordinary villas, one on the Palm, one in the Bulgari Island area that have gone on market with eye-watering prices this week. They're catching headlines, obviously, at the moment. But does that sort of shadow the undersupply issue at the moment? You, know, you mentioned about your friend coming over as well and others. Well, if there ain't properties for them to buy... And, and look, that's the big issue here. Like, I think if we look at uh, you know, the, the lack of supply, and I'll just pick one community, Jumeirah Golf Estates, as an example, because that, that gentleman I mentioned who won't appreciate me probably mentioning him on the radio, you know, I've got three friends live there. None of them are happy with the supply. There's just not enough of quality, good, uh, decent villas. When you look on the palm at sort of turnkey luxury luxury villas. There's three you know, that would qualify on an international standard. You are seeing good quality penthouses. There's a lot of fantastic launches. You've got One Palm, Royal Atlantis, Six Senses is coming, uh, Dorchester, uh, one Zabil's just handed over. But on a villa side of things, there really aren't that many villas that are actually um, available that would qualify by international standards. So that undersupply, I think, will keep prices uh, fairly steady. The only way you can redeem yourself is by giving his air conditioning company a plug on the radio. But I, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to do that under any circumstances. Uh, but uh, and I still find it hilarious that this is where he chose, but he's got that company in the UK. <laughs> Might go well here. Exactly. Might be exactly. a market here. Who knows? Uh, listen, really appreciate it. Thanks very much indeed for your time. Thanks for coming in as well on a Friday morning. Thank you very much indeed for the report. Latest report is now out from Savills. And a huge thanks to Andrew Cummings, the head of residential agency at Savills Middle East. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.